Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Upholding the Truth. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Story of a Local Church. I've begun a study of Paul's letter called 1 Timothy. And in my introduction to this letter, I pointed out that 1 Timothy is among three letters in the New Testament called the pastoral epistles. They include 1 and 2 Timothy in the book of Titus. Now, these three books or letters have traditionally been called that because these three books have been written to men, Timothy and then Titus, who were called by Paul to give key and primary leadership to a local church. And hence, we think of them as pastors, preachers, teachers, and church leaders. See, in the case of 1 Timothy, we saw that Paul had instructed Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he might teach certain men not to teach false doctrines, and we'll come back to that later. But that's the reason why Paul had insisted that Timothy spend a good bit of time in Ephesus. There was a problem there. But he doesn't write the letter to tell Timothy how to prevail over the false teachers. Rather, Paul writes 1 Timothy in here, I'm using Paul's own words so that he could instruct the church on how they were to behave. Now, that might sound like a strange way of saying things, how they might behave. But if you take some time and think about that interesting way of putting things, it might make sense. If you're confronted by false teachers, how should you respond? What's proper Christian behavior in such a case? Is it that we allow both sides to debate and let each person make up his own mind on various points of doctrine? Is the church a debating society? Is that considered proper Christian behavior in a local church? I mean, some would say yes, and still others would strongly object. Some would say proper behavior is to practice excommunication immediately. Another word for behave might be to practice a proper Christian decorum. What kind of action would be considered Christian at such a point in time? There are other issues in this book. How should Christians behave or conduct themselves when it comes to the governing authorities, and for that matter, to the wider non-Christian culture? What does Christian decorum look like there? And then there's the important matter about Christian leadership and the kind of authority one might invest in leaders. How should Christians think about and relate to their leaders, and for that matter, who should become a leader? And then again, how should people deal with Timothy, the the young pastor that Paul had installed in the Christian church in Ephesus? But there are other issues of decorum in this church. How should the young and old relate to each other? How should one relate to widows who, in many cases, had no means of financial support? How does one interact with people who don't have a job and don't want one? Is there a Christian rule around work and productivity and industry? And since we're talking about work, what do we make of those who become wealthy? See, 1 Timothy is a letter. If you spend any time in a local church, it sounds so very normal. It's about what a corporate life actually looks like. God wants all people to be a part of a local church. But God also wants you to know what kind of behavior leads to a healthy church and and what kind leads to its destruction. You see, If your church is unhealthy, who then will proclaim the truth of God in Christ to your community? There's so much at stake here. Now, Ephesus was an interesting place. And if you happen to wonder if there's still a church in Ephesus today, well, the answer is no, there's not. 
Is that because the church failed? No, it didn't. Something else happened, and I'll explain in a bit. See, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor in its day. It faced out from the coast of Turkey, looking out west over the Mediterranean Sea. It was a city of some 500,000 people. It was commonly agreed that it was among the top five most important cities of the Roman Empire. It was filled with theaters, baths, and libraries. The streets of that city were paved with pure marble. From the harbor to the city center was a magnificent street called the Arcadian Way. It was a road which was 70 feet wide with Roman columns on either side. I mean, imagine coming to the city by sea and being greeted with that kind of a sight. The city also boasted a number of important religious sites, including the very large and important Temple of Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. It was a very sensuous city. It was a pagan city. It was an important city, and it was a wealthy city. But Paul had been very successful there, and a church was born, a church that grew rapidly and became one of the most important churches in the ancient world. Indeed, if we're right that the time of the writing of 1 Timothy is A.D. 63, then you're going to notice that in just seven years from the writing of this letter, the Romans would burn Jerusalem and its temple to the ground, leaving Jerusalem, as the prophet Hosea predicted, like a plowed field. And then very shortly after, Ephesus would become the global center of the Christian church. And yeah, for a while, this church was the most important church in the entire Christian world. The Apostle John took up residence there, and it was there, more than likely, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, died. I'm saying all these things to give an impression. The local church in Ephesus was a very important local church. Indeed, it's right to say that the eyes of the entire Christian movement were on Ephesus. If Paul wanted to teach behavior in the global church, this was the place to start. Ah, but I know what you're still wanting to ask. Is there a Christian church in Ephesus today? And the answer is no, there's not. And that's because over time, the harbor silted up, making trade impossible, and people just moved out and the city died. But that was still a long way off at the writing of this book. Paul writes this book because, as he tells Timothy, every local church is a pillar of the truth to the community where it's located. This church, the church where Timothy took key leadership, was to be the pillar and buttress of the truth of God in Christ to the local community. If this church didn't proclaim Christ to the city of Ephesus, that city would remain in spiritual darkness. So much was at stake. This church must flourish. And in order to flourish, they needed to know how to behave in the household of God. And so because Paul was concerned about the local church in Ephesus, he sent Timothy there. Ephesus had become a haven for false teachers and squabbles over leadership. So then Paul sends Timothy as his representative to serve as pastor to the church in Ephesus. He's supposed to set things right. He is to teach proper conduct. But where does one start? Do you start by telling everyone to get along? I mean, what? And that's why this book is so very relevant for every Christian church today. Your community's only chance to know the truth of God in Christ depends on the success of your local church. If your church is healthy, it will bring a great blessing to your city, your town, or your municipality. But if your church becomes ineffective, Satan will have a heyday, for the voice of the gospel of Jesus Christ will become stilled in your community. It's so much that's at stake. So what can we say? Well, first, 
proper conduct begins with a recognition and submission to authority. So let's start our study by simply reading the first verse in this book. 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, some of you who are listening to this study are no doubt aware that 1 Timothy has been criticized by some liberal scholars. They argue that 1 Timothy must be a fraud, not written by Paul at all, because the very first verse of the book is a clear evidence that the whole thing must be a fraud. Now, to be clear, those who make the argument have no historical evidence for that. It's all based on conjecture. But the point they make looks like this. Paul, they say, is writing to Timothy, who is a very dear friend. Well, who writes their friend using this kind of formal language? If this were a legitimate letter, so they say, it would begin by saying, Paul, your dear friend and father in the faith, or something like that. Endearing, not formal. Personal, not official. I mean, after all, would not Paul and Timothy have had so many personal interactions, which they prayed together, planned together, ate together, laughed together, and cried together? So whenever this kind of thing gets said, we're reminded how painfully that misses the point. First Timothy is not a personal letter how easy it is to make the mistake. Indeed, the mistake that these theologians make ultimately betrays that they don't understand proper behavior in the church. See, the best analogy I can think of is that of a military general writing instructions to a field commander. The general doesn't begin by saying, hey, buddy, how are you, how are you doing, my old friend? I mean, how are the wife and kids? I mean, even if the field commander is his own son, the general, if it relates to the mission, on the field of battle, will address him in a formal tone. They will remember the chain of command. That's imperative. And so Paul, in writing Timothy, doesn't write him as his friend, but as one who is sent out under his authority to act on his behalf in giving key leadership to the church in Ephesus. Everyone in Ephesus who would have then heard the letter of 1 Timothy being read would have known that this is Timothy's instruction to everyone in the church. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate. Register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Alatha Gaines, Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, so for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Every single one of Paul's 13 letters begins in precisely the same way. It begins with Paul and he begins with writing his Greek name, and then it refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. In Romans, he says he was called and set apart by God for this. In First and Second Corinthians, he says he's an apostle by the will of God. In Galatians, he says that this was not from men nor through man, 
but from Jesus and from the Father and so forth. He always identifies himself as an apostle, that is, his title, and then he explains why he got that title. He says, it came by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So much for all who say titles don't mean anything. Listen, they mean plenty. Now, please don't confuse what I've just said to imply that an apostle is the same as an elder. You know, an elder submits to an apostle. In the end, congregations are to submit to their elders. Now, look again. As Paul explains, he's an apostle by the command of the Father and the Son. In other words, Paul makes clear that he didn't volunteer for the apostolic office. It was thrust on him. God chose him for this. He commanded, that's a military term, and Paul assumed the role. No apologies are offered. No false humility. That's because Paul's apostleship has nothing to do with his will. It's God's will. His conversion story, his calling, was a public record. There's simply a fact. And this is so important. To rebel against Paul's apostolic calling is to rebel against the God who put him into office. Again, may I be clear, a local pastor isn't an apostle. The application of this principle is not that you should treat your pastor as if he were an apostle. He's not. Rather, the application is that you should read the writings of Paul as if they have come directly from the mouth of Jesus. When Paul speaks, he is speaking for Jesus. And, and by the way, I've heard many people say that, you know, they have problems with Paul, and that's because he seems so authoritative. He commands people, and that gets our hackles up. Well, true enough, but imagine a military general making excuses for his rank or saying to the troops, I mean, gee, shucks, guys, I mean, what, what do you think we should do? See, an apostle is a sent one. That is, he's sent by Jesus to speak on his behalf. And being an apostle, that gave Paul the authority to speak for Jesus. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. You'll also notice the word order in verse 1. I mean, we often speak of Jesus as Jesus Christ. But Paul often reverses the order, and why is that? Because Christ, or Messiah, or the anointed one of God, that's Jesus' title. It's his badge of authority over the world. Kind of like saying Queen Elizabeth. Her title before her name indicates first her office of authority. And Paul wants his hearers to know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and no man should challenge him. And this Jesus called, indeed commanded, that Paul should be his apostle. And that's why when we read 1 Timothy, we're not invited to a discussion or a dialogue or a banter about the truth. We're invited to submit to the truth. 1 Timothy is among a small company of books in the world that are infallible and inerrant. That is, there are no errors in this book. There's no false advice here. There's nothing that needs updating. Nothing that was true then but not now. Rather, each word is wholly trustworthy. It's like a tuning fork determining whether our lives or our church lives are in tune with God the Father and with Christ Jesus. As a way of emphasizing that, Paul calls God the Father our Savior. He acknowledges that the Father eternally planned our salvation and that Christ Jesus, by his work in carrying out the Father's plan or being fully obedient to the Father, has provided hope for the world. From the very beginning, Paul is laying out the groundwork. Proper conduct begins when we determine to submit to divine authority. If you want to hold the truth about God high, he says, then submit to God. Now, notice 
also that proper conduct is furthered as we carry out our assignment. So we go to the first half of verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. You know, Paul's relationship with Timothy is well documented in the Bible. We know that Timothy's father was a Greek, most likely not a believer. His mother and grandmother were godly women and trained him in the faith from childhood. Paul heard of him when he was on his second missionary journey, and Acts 16 mentions that the believers in Lystra and Iconium were speaking very highly of him, so Paul was determined to meet this young man. He was undoubtedly so impressed with him that he decided to take him along on his missionary work of planting churches, and as they say, you know, the rest is history. Timothy became Paul's disciple. Paul taught him scriptures and taught him how to do ministry. And it wasn't long before Paul would begin work in the city and he would leave Timothy there to carry on. And Timothy soon becomes one of Paul's leading workers sent out by him on numerous assignments. And when one reads the book of Acts and Paul's letters, one gets the sense of Paul's growing confidence in Timothy. For instance, listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. And here I'm reading 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. See, in other words, Paul began to feel so confident in Timothy, he considered a visit by Timothy to be as good as if he himself were there, for Timothy acted on Paul's behalf. Timothy wasn't the apostle, but he was a young man who was determined to make sure people heard and acted on the authority that Christ had given to the apostles. In other words, Timothy didn't claim that he had been given authority to speak on Christ's behalf, but he made sure that people were listening to those who spoke in that way. And see, that's one of the reasons these books are called the pastoral epistles. Pastors don't speak their own words, not if they're faithful. They declare the words that have already been spoken and work to put those words into effect in the same way as if the apostles were there. See, in all the many years I served as a pastor, I always reminded myself of that, especially when I stood in the pulpit. The pulpit was no place for me to express my views about anything. I mean, after all, I had no authority. The only authority I had was to read the Scripture and explain them so that everyone could understand, and then to help God's people understand how the Scripture applied to them. I was a man under authority. That brings us full circle. Remember, I spoke about proper conduct in the household of God. See, we can't change our beliefs with the changing times. We're not free to behave in ways that seem appropriate to us, not if we're going to be the buttress and pillar of the truth. Now, let's go on to the last part of verse 2 grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This much needs to be said. Proper conduct in the house of God is not possible outside of grace, mercy, and peace. What we have in the last part of verse 2 is a very standard Pauline greeting. Often he simply says grace and peace, but here he adds mercy. Grace is undeserved favor. It's getting something for nothing. It always speaks of God's wonderful gift of forgiveness and reconciliation in the cross. We were made children of God only because of grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. We've not earned it. It was given. Imagine the dining room of King David's palace. 
Gold and bronze fixtures gleamed on the walls. There's a lofty wooden ceiling. The table is massive. The floor is abundant. The candelabras are imposing. And David, the great king, sits in a place of honor. His children gather for the meal, and there's Absalom, tanned and muscular and self-confident and handsome. There's David's beautiful daughter, Tamar, filled with grace and dignity. And key military men have been invited, including the three mighty men, men who have done great exploits in battle. Some leading dignitaries are there, like the king of Tyre. Dancers and singers are present, ready to entertain all the men and women. And yet, they don't begin. David won't let them, because one figure is absent. And then you hear something down the hall, clump, scrape, clump, scrape. And then finally there he stands, a crutch in his hand, barely able to walk, a cripple, a grandson of a man who tried to murder David years ago. It's Mephibosheth, the layman who's never accomplished a thing. The man who David insists must grace the table before the meal begins. Mephibosheth sits down. The tablecloth covers his lame feet. Now and only now, the banquet can begin. It's called grace. You can't conduct yourself in the household of God until you realize that you don't belong there. Grace speaks of undeserved favor, and mercy speaks about the reason such a favor was given. God has taken pity on us, and peace is the result of those who have received grace and mercy. In fact, no church can raise the banner of truth until it understands itself as unworthy of being a church of Jesus Christ. All right conduct begins there. Thanks so much for your message, John. I think I'm going to pose to you maybe a difficult question, but I think it's true to say when it comes to church discipline, addressing conduct, we see most churches really struggle. Why do you think that is? Well, a part of it is simply cultural because, I mean, we live in a culture today that has stressed freedom over faithfulness, submission to the Word. So, you know, it's very difficult then in a a culture in which the idea that, you know, a, a church would say, but we demand a certain conduct from all of God's people. You know, some of us have difficulty doing that. And we might be afraid as well in terms of, you know, what the wider culture will say. Um, so we're, I guess we're going to have to ask ourselves whether or not, you know, we're confident that Scripture calls us to do this, and we can do this in a loving fashion, but we need to recognize that we are called upon as the church to ask people to submit to the precepts of Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back to the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. 
Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each.